0: Hello, and welcome to another of our National Security Magazine conversations. This time, we are fortunate to have with us Jake Sullivan, a former senior U.S. official uh, in national security, both at the State Department and at the White House, and top advisor to Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign. Uh, Jake, welcome. Thanks for having me, David. So one of the things we want to do on this series of conversations is talk a little bit about what is changing in uh, the area of national security and what we can expect. Uh, And I thought I'd start with uh, three areas where we have seen fairly substantial uh, changes over the course of the past uh, two years and then look a little bit at the future. And the place I'd like to begin is. the recent comments uh, by Secretary of State Pompeo uh, that suggested that he was going to essentially seek to institutionalize the nationalism of Donald Trump. In the past, that nationalism has manifested itself in the president's statements um, and with our gradual serial withdrawal from a variety of international uh, kinds of arrangements from TPP to the Paris Trade Accords to UN organizations um, and so forth, um, and uh, you know, Pompeo made a speech in which he sought to sort of frame this as a policy and to suggest that there was more to come, that there were more institutions that the United States was, in in uh, his uh, language, uh, essentially ceding sovereignty to, um, and that it was time for. A reset. And I guess I'd like your take on that and your sense of whether or not this is a short-term Trump aberration or whether there's something longer term here that we need to keep an eye on. Well, first of all,
1: listening to Secretary Pompeo's speech reminded me of the op-ed that Uh, two now departed Trump officials, uh, his chief economic advisor, Gary Cohn, and his previous national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, wrote in the Wall Street Journal last year, which was kind of version 1.0 of giving some shape and substance to America first. Uh, And in that, they basically derided the idea of anything like a global community or global cooperation. And they said you know, basically, the world is a dog-eat-dog place where nations and businesses and people compete for advantage, and we welcome that. That's a good thing. And basically, what uh, what Mike Pompeo was doing in version 2.0, another Trump official going out to try to create a package around uh, Donald Trump's sort of bundle of instincts and intuitions on foreign policy, was to carry that forward to to say more or less that. Um, the United States is happy operating in a zero-sum world and a dog-eat-dog world because, after all, aren't we the biggest dog? And international institutions, which were long seen as force multipliers for American power and influence in the world, are now seen somehow as constraints, uh, are now seen as shackles on whatever version of, quote-unquote, sovereignty Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo are, are touting these days. And and so the question of whether this is where things are headed in the future, I'd say two things. First, uh, Elizabeth Warren gave a speech recently and wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs. Bernie Sanders has been out on the campaign, uh, pre-campaign trail, whatever you might call it, um, making a series of statements about foreign policy as well. And what you're seeing on the Democratic side is essentially a convergence of left and center left repudiating this kind of zero-sum approach, making the case for... Uh, continued American internationalism. So I think there is a strong antibody growing to um, what Trump and his team have put forward. But on the other hand, it definitely reflects a strain in U.S. thinking and U.S. foreign policy. And so I don't think the answer is either this is an aberration or this is going to be the way of the future. I think we are going to see American policy probably swing back and forth in future years between the traditional positive sum internationalism of past democratic and republican presidents and this more aggressive form of unilateralism and sovereignty that trump is talking about i don't think even if trump is defeated in 2020 this goes away entirely that, that it will rear its head again in the future and american strategists are just going to have to deal with and, and so as our strategists
0: around the world a more inconstant united states you know one of the the trends that may point to this is the the, the, the the fact that over the course of the next 20 years or so, as more and more of the U.S. population is located in urban areas, um, you get uh, an imbalance, which is going to you know, affect the Senate, for example, very profoundly, where you'll have 70 percent of the U.S. population 20 years from now uh, with essentially about thirty percent of the votes in the in the Senate, and 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 thirty percent of the population with seventy percent of the votes, um, and that thirty that that thirty percent, of course, is rural, more isolated, uh, less involved with the rest of the world in some respects. Although the agricultural community certainly has engagement in the global economy increasingly, um, but but they tend to be the the, 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 the forces of isolation, nationalism, and the forces that have been most strongly pro-Trump. And at least in the US Senate, it looks like they're going to gain ground. Do you see that as a structural shift or might there be a backlash even within that as we've seen recently with regard to the president's tariff policy?
1: Well, when soybean exports to China go down 98% and those exports shift to countries like Brazil, um, and likely are never coming back once they shift, uh, I do think that you'll see a bit of a shakeup in terms of the degree to which even rural America begins to see the costs and consequences of Trump's approach to national security. But, you know, I think underlying this, there is a, a bigger problem. And, and as that base of Trump's, as those communities uh, gain increasing power and influence in the Senate, because of the dynamic you just described. I think you're gonna see politicians increasingly, especially on the right, following the Trump playbook, which is to try to turn foreign policy and national security into something beyond a kind of abstract strategic issue and more into an identity issue. You see, for Trump America First, yes, is about trade deals and it's about kind of allies taking advantage of us. It has these elements, but at its core, really, It's a mashup of national security, identity, immigration, kind of what America is and represents and all these scary bad people out there, the Muslims and the Mexicans and others. Uh, And so this toxic blend that he's created, I think, will become an increasingly kind of common part of the playbook for demagogues on the right. And it will infect and afflict all of these other aspects of national security because we'll start to see the rest of the world as the other, as to be feared, to be pushed back against. Um, And so walls and bans and the kinds of things Trump has been talking about with respect to homeland security and migration policy in the United States will increasingly become, I think, uh, a charged part of the rhetoric when it comes to our foreign policy writ large that's very dangerous. And so for me, the best answer is to figure out a way um, to speak to all Americans, including those who support Trump about some set of principles and purposes for American foreign policy, what it's about, who we are as a country, what we stand for. Um, and, And that requires, I think, not just going back to doing things the way we were doing them before, are coming up with both new ways of framing these issues and new policies to implement them that are responsive to uh, Americans in both cities and in rural areas in the United States.
0: Yeah, you know, I think you make a, a point because as ominous as nationalism sounds, uh, nationalism still affords people like Trump the ability to say, all I mean is that I love America. But actually what you're talking about what he means with his policy approach is the foreign policy of identity politics. And that essentially he's not saying America and the world, he's saying people who look like me and us versus the world. And it becomes, you know, a white male foreign policy as opposed to something else um, and it may be a white male European, et cetera, et cetera, foreign policy. And that's, that's of course beyond exclusionary. It's sort of founded in a kind of, um, racism, um, that's not only odious, but it's fundamentally contrary to the American ideal and idea. Well, yeah, you
1: know, it's interesting. It raises the question, well, okay, if that's kind of an emerging operating theory for really what's behind Trumpism, then why is it he has such a problem with Europeans? After all, they're white, they're Christian, what have you, uh, by and large. Um, And the answer to that is a second strand of what I think is driving Trump's foreign policy, and that is making uh, it so that politics absolutely does not stop at the water's edge, that, that politics is global for him, and that foreign policy issues are wedge issues, same as domestic policy issues. So he looks at European small D Democrats and basically sees American big D Democrats. These are people who whine at him about refugees and climate change and other things along those lines, you know, inclusive prosperity. And and so he culturally, politically is somewhat offended by European leaders. And then to your point about white male leadership I think he looks at an Angela Merkel or a Theresa May and sees a Hillary Clinton or a Nancy Pelosi. And he's like, I don't want to deal with these people. Whereas he has an affinity for someone like a Vladimir Putin, because that's his ideal for what a strong, um, robust leader should look like. And uh, Russia represents, from his perspective, exactly the kind of you know, anti-Muslim, anti-China, you know, strong man, don't worry about all these silly democratic values. Um, that that whole kind of system, value system, uh, is something that he's very much attracted to. So I believe that even if you left aside all of his financial ties and the interaction, the pattern of interactions in the 2016 campaign between Russia and the Trump organization and, and the Trump team, Trump would still love Vladimir Putin in Russia because that fits his model for what um, good leadership in the world
0: looks like. Yeah, I think, you know, um, particularly with presidents, you know, character is destiny. And uh, there are different aspects of the Trump character which drive different aspects of foreign policy. Um, He has been excluded from elites for most of his life. Uh, and is tr- distrustful of of groups like the transatlantic elite who are sort of wired into American elites that have been distrustful of him, uh, and groups that have been traditionally on the outside in the U.S. Um, you know are kind of the demi he's used to operating in. Well, you know whether it was going to Atlantic City and dealing with mobsters, and now Putin, Erdogan, Duterte. Um, uh, MBS, all fall into in, into that kind of thing. So there are clubs he distrusts, there are clubs that will have him and he likes them. He does like, as you say, the kind of strong man thing because he think it reflects well on him. And then there's the transactionalism that you mentioned, which is foreign policy free of any kind of morality. It's just who's willing to do a deal with me. Maybe it all comes down to who's willing to deal with me. Who is? Who, who thinks I have something to offer if if they if they' if they're willing, you know, I'm willing to talk. and that you know that, that seems like it's very much about Trump. But I guess the big question is, um, is that something that could continue on after Trump? Um, because there is so much distrust in a big part of America with elites, global solutions. International institutions, the traditional way of doing things um, and you know might might that be you know a, a, a more lasting shift somewhere in there
1: well, I do think we need to ask ourselves one question because this th- th- there is a, a way in which I think an element of trump 's approach may endure, and the question we have to ask is does his um, model of being a little more unpredictable, asserting American leverage a bit more directly and, um, you know, with more force, uh, actually produce the possibility for the resolution of some challenges that have been lingering for quite a long time. And, and one of the, the ones on, on the top of my mind right now is China's trade abuses, Uh I think there is no doubt that Trump's approach has gotten China's attention. And so the question is, um, now, can he convert that into any kind of real meaningful change in China's behavior in ways that were down to America's interests and, and to the interests of the broader international economy? I have my doubts about whether he's going to be able to do that, in part because rather than build a united front with our European friends and our uh, Asian allies and the like, he's chosen to go it alone. And and he's likely to settle for some politically comfortable deal for himself. But the setup of this thing is, you know, not not necessarily um, completely on the wrong track. And and I think we have to ask ourselves um, if we took the basic proposition, which said uh, that if the U.S. applies its power and influence, To deal with problems that just kind of hang around in an aggressive and robust way, but do so with friends and with a clear purpose in mind, um, would we actually end up in a better position, particularly when it comes to uh, countries that at least in part are strategic competitors like the Chinese. I think Democratic candidates who are thinking about running in 2020 will be watching this and will be thinking about their approach to the U.S.-China relationship in part against this backdrop. And they'll have a lot to criticize in Trump's approach and in the likelihood that it's not going to actually pay the dividends, he hopes it will. But there are elements of this, of kind of taking this, taking on some of these challenges more frontally, more decisively, with more force, uh, not military force, but, but sort of diplomatic force and the force of suasion. Um, I think that may, that may become a feature of U.S. foreign policy as we go forward, even as Democrats try to set to one side this soulless transactionalism that I think is not just an affront to American values, but actually is not in the long-term interests of the United States who benefits from a positive sum uh, set of institutions in which we are better, safer, and stronger when others are better, safer, and stronger, and others gain is not necessarily our loss. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that I'm going to watch carefully here over the next couple of years as we watch the debate shape up between Democratic candidates and the president over foreign policy.
0: You know, I think that's, you know, I mean, one of the things that happens almost inevitably when, you know, a president has some political success, and by becoming president, you have some political success. Is that the other side says what? Do, what is there to learn? What do we embrace and what do we reject? And you know, I remember I was in the Clinton administration, and you know, Bill Clinton came in, and you know, he ran on I'm against NAFTA, I'm you know, I'm against GATT and and so forth. But he also ran on you know, I'm going to take a stance on welfare cheats, and I'm and so forth, where he was sort of adopting a little bit of Reagan, and there, he was trying to find a a, a path and you know, some of what Trump says is easily rejected because it's corrupt. And some of what Trump says is fairly easily rejected because it's obviously contrary to our interest to blow up alliances and just Trump doesn't understand them. But, but issues like the China stance um, are, are things that are going to be embraced. And you can think of Democratic candidates who already have a view that's pretty close to that of of Trump on China and Sherrod Brown or or you know, Bernie Sanders or whomever. Um, let, me, let me do something here because I do wanna sort of lead in that direction. But what I'd like to do is take five or six or seven minutes and just give you some recent developments that seem to be different from the past in one way or another. And just get you to say in a minute or two, whether you think this is short term or there is something longer term underneath this that people ought to keep their eye on, okay? And I'll just do four or five of them. Um, uh, You mentioned China, which was one of the ones I want to talk about. One of the other things that's happened recently is the United States has essentially said, we are done with the INF treaty. The Russians aren't following it, we're out. And this is just sort of the latest of the treaties that we're out of, but it does, Change the dynamic of the U.S.-Russia relationship, and it also hints at a desire, which Trump has talked about, of moving towards, um, you know, sort of more usable nuclear weapons, smaller, more modern, et cetera. Do you think this is, you know, um, uh, Trumpism, or do you think there is something longer term going on?
1: I think it's madness and I, I don't, I think Trump has a unique and particular fascination with nuclear weapons going back a long way. He says a lot of kind of bizarre things about them. You know, speaking of the power, the immense power of nuclear weapons, it's a strange kind of um, psychological element to Trump's foreign policy. Uh, kind of, I think probably rooted in the fifties and sixties when he was growing up and nuclear weapons loomed so large.
0: And his um, uncle. Don't, uh, don't forget his uncle who taught him
1: everything about nuclear weapons. Uh, there you go. And his uncle. And, and remember, in the 80s, too, he was claiming that he should be named the nuclear negotiator because only he could go sit down with the Soviets to work these things out. So he has a kind of long and unique history with this. And I don't believe that the overall thrust of strategic thinking in the United States among either Democrats or Republicans is towards shifting to tactical, usable, intermediate range nuclear weapons distributed to American bases around the globe. Um, So I don't believe that descriptively and prescriptively. I think that would be a terrible idea. Um, Now, I think married with Trump's own kind of strange relationship with nuclear weapons is John Bolton's desire to destroy any nuclear-related arms agreement That the United States has entered. That includes the Iran nuclear deal. That includes uh, the anti-ballistic missile treaty that George Bush pulled out of with Bolton's help uh, several years ago. That includes the INF treaty. That includes not wanting to extend New START. And you could go on down the line uh, because John Bolton ultimately believes the way that we should solve a lot of these problems is either through A good old fashioned nuclear arms race with other countries in which we gain the advantage, or through the use of military force to deny countries like Iran um, the capacity to get nuclear weapons. I just think these are outlier views. They do not reflect common sense positions of everyday Americans, and they do not reflect the considered judgments of uh, national security experts. So I think this is an area where if Trump is defeated in 2020, you'll see us get back onto a more sensible course.
0: All right, well, let me give you an easy one. I think also may fall into this category. But uh, while Trump was sort of wandering around aimlessly looking like the zombie president at the G20 meeting, um, one of the things that he actually did was he um, uh, noted that while 19 other members of the G20 were worried about global warming, he was not. Because, you know, he has a gut and his gut tells him things that. Um, experts may not actually know. Um, And the U.S., one of the first things he did was he pulled out of the Paris Accords, now to punish General Motors, uh, apparently, uh, for having the audacity not to like having high steel and aluminum tariffs, He seems to be considering pulling subsidies for electric cars. Um, his, His policies with regard to Uh, The environment otherwise, whether it's eliminating safety regulations or pollution regulations uh, or despoiling National Park, seems actually to be very consistent across the board. And on almost every level, it's 180 degree opposite of democratic policy uh, or historical democratic positions. Going to stay, going to change on a dime.
1: You know, it's interesting. This is an easy one on, you know, kind of judging the merits of it. Uh, you know, it, it's just uh, outrageous, the approach that Trump and the Trump administration have taken on climate issues, starting with pulling out of the Paris Agreement and then this sorry performance at the G20, plus the threats around the removal of subsidies and, and incentives for uh, renewables. Um, it's a harder one when it comes to predicting the political future of this issue in the United States, because if you had asked me 15 years ago, I would have said that over time, the Republican opposition to the basic facts of climate science um, would soften in the face of mounting evidence, scientific evidence, evidence before our very eyes to you know reinforce the fact that the planet is warming, that humans are causing it and that we need to act quickly. That hasn't really happened. And the other thing, if you would ask me 15 years ago, do, would I think climate change would become a dominant issue in presidential politics in the United States as uh, the problem got more urgent and the public became more aware? I would have said, yes, it will rise rather than fall in urgency. Maybe it doesn't go to the top of the list, but it'll go higher on the list. In fact, in 2016, climate was basically absent from the discussion and significantly less of a salient issue for voters than it had been back eight years earlier in 2008. So I don't, I'm confounded, actually, by the politics of this issue in the United States and whether, particularly as we cleave so much on so many basic things, like on is Vladimir Putin a good guy or a bad guy? That's become a political issue, a Republican-Democrat issue. Um, I just worry that, the Republican base and Republican lawmakers and leaders are just going to keep digging in. And I I think it's really, so this is, this transcends Trump in a way. Um, Although I'll finish with one observation. You mentioned Trump listening to his gut, his gut tells him everything. A, A friend of mine remarked to me recently that the, the biggest powers in the world are now all run by presidents or leaders who essentially have that in common? Xi Jinping kind of listens to something inside of him. Vladimir Putin listens to something inside. Of him, not really to anyone else. And same with Donald Trump. Uh, you see this to a certain extent with kind of lesser powers. MBS is a great example uh, of the similar kind of phenomenon. It creates a really interesting set of uh, <laughs> questions around the stability of the international system when you have so many leaders with this common feature to their decision-making, that it's kind of gut-based and intuition-based, that experts and, and the decision-making systems around these guys are not really used or seen as useful. Um, that goes well beyond climate change, but it's an observation that I think has a lot, you know, a lot to unpack, something that we should all look at over the course of the coming years. Particularly as some of those
0: leaders may be around for a long time. Yeah, it's true. Although I, you know, you might argue that uh, Putin and Xi Jinping have also spent their entire careers in government service uh, and learning different aspects of the things that now um, uh, involve them in their jobs. And Trump has has. Zero experience doing this, and so that is a very that
1: is a very fair point. In that sense, I do not want to equate him with them. That. That, that's uh, that is a highly useful corrective, um, right? So but, it's but yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, but but I do think that when you when you put a guy like Trump into an equation where you have
0: gut and intuition based leaders like that, it can create a pretty combustible mix. Okay, so let me ask you one more question about the, 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 you know, this kind of round of you know, what's, what's changing or what's likely to be different, uh, and then I'm going to go to a final question that sort of sums them, pulls, pulls them together, um, and that is one that I, I just feel we have to address, um, and, and that has to do with this transactionalism as illustrated not by the relationship with Russia, but by the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Where um, the President uh, says, "Well, I'm like any other realist, and the fact that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia um, has ordered the, you know the murder of a U.S resident, you know, columnist for The Washington Post is just not worth screwing up our relationship with Saudi Arabia because, you know, we need their oil or we need the low price of oil." Um, and you know, even the the, the day that we are taping this, uh, a CIA briefing on the Hill produced Republican Congress, uh, senators, both Bob Corker and Lindsey Graham, coming out and saying, "No, no, Mohammed bin Salman did this." You know, he, it's very clear this was his his dirty work, and and we're you know we split from the administration on this, and and the question is, you know, with wither relationships like Saudi Arabia post Trump because. There are a bunch of countries like Saudi Arabia, but I would also say, by the way, just to round this out, like Israel, that have bet very heavily on being super close to Donald Trump because they thought they could get their way with him, um, but he may not be around forever, right? What then?
1: Yeah, well, let me, let me start by saying that you know, Mike Pompeo wrote an op-ed about Saudi Arabia that if you had just come down from Mars and you read it, you would assume that Mike Pompeo was the Secretary of State of the Supplicant Nation and Mohammed bin Salman was um the leader of uh of preeminent global superpower. It that the tone of the piece was all about how badly the United States needs Saudi Arabia, how you know, our economy and our security depend on this relationship. And while I don't believe that we want to throw the relationship overboard entirely by any means, I don't think that that would be in the interest of the United States. I also believe we need a serious reassessment and rebalancing of this relationship,
0: Uh,
1: a a lowering of expectations, uh, given the vast differences in values and outlooks of our two countries, a narrowing of of the things that we work on and strengthening of our resolve to stand up and push back when we think the Saudis are going too far. And not just with respect to this murder, but the conduct of their war in Yemen, the ways in which various aspects of their society continue to support Sunni extremists and terrorists and so forth. And I think that we can get to a sensible, mature place that does not fundamentally destabilize either the relationship or the kingdom but that puts it on more realistic, credible footing. And you know what actually has us standing up and being relatively proud of ourselves that we, we do not have to think of ourselves as somehow in hock to or reliant upon Saudi Arabia, even for things like oil, which for one thing, the energy revolution has changed that equation quite dramatically. But for another Saudi Arabia is not producing oil out of charity to the United States. They're producing oil, uh, because that is the commodity that drives their economy and uh, maintains order in their society. So so I think quite apart from the way in which uh, MBS and some of the people around them rather ostentatiously embraced Trump and said, we didn't like Obama and we love you, um, quite apart from that dynamic, which I do think has made Democrats kind of raise their eyebrows and said, say, what gives here? I think the underlying structural dynamics will push Democrats in general on both the Hill and presidential candidates to call for this reassessment in the relationship uh, I think with. US Israel the challenge is a little more um, vexing because Democrats deeply uh, fear this relationship becoming a political football uh, that somehow um, it become it divides along partisan lines and I think Israelis should worry about that too, Uh, because the strength of the U.S.-Israel relationship has always been based on a foundation of bipartisan support, that it was not a political issue. And I do think that Prime Minister Netanyahu has taken steps going back into the Obama administration with the speech before Congress and other things that have contributed to this politicization. And Democrats have taken note of that, but I don't think their answer is going to want to be punitive against Israel I think it's going to want to be to send a very clear message that the United States cannot accept a world in which Israel becomes a wedge issue. Uh, that is not in keeping with our interests or our values. And it's not in keeping with the long-term benefit uh, or the long-term prospects of the U.S.-Israel relationship. So there is an interesting parallel between the cases of Saudi and Israel, but I think the way that um, that people on the other side of Trump will react to
0: each of them will be quite different. Now, though, I think there's another parallel just listening to you. And that is one that's common and been common in my experience of dealing with foreign policy. And that is uh, governments and and elites tend to confuse other governments with other countries. And that's a two-way street. So uh, Trump says, well, we need a relationship with Saudi Arabia. But what he really means is I want to keep a relationship with the ruling family and the power structure that's there without recognizing that when they see the behavior of MBS, when the people of Saudi Arabia do, this feeds the antipathy for the royal family. And this is the kind of thing that's gotten us into trouble a lot in countries around the world where uh, we support a country by supporting the government. And then the people turn on that government um, and they turn on us. Uh, because we're seen as having supported their oppression or torture or whatever and the and the flip side is that foreign governments um, say, well, you know we support you know we you know, they get too close to a uh, you know leader like Trump, and they don't realize that things change and and I have to say in the case of Saudi Arabia, talk to any member of the democratic uh, house or talk to people on the democratic Senate side who see an opportunity like Chris Murphy, when they look and see where Lindsey Graham and 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 others are, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is going to change now. It's I don't think Trump's driving that car anymore, no matter how hard he tries. Um, so, you know, who is Saudi Arabia? Who is the United States? Is I think a big question both sides need to to ask. And I th- I think I- the same is true with the Israelis, by the way. You know, it's
1: interesting about, uh, just briefly on the Israelis, that that Bibi has been around for so many years now that in a way we think of him as kind of one more eternal Middle Eastern leader uh, rather than a Democrat, democratically elected prime minister is, you know, going to leave at some point and we'll get someone else. It's funny, he's he's occupied that office for a sufficient number of years that he kind of is falling into the category of other leaders around the region to a certain extent. But on the Saudi point, which I completely agree with, and we're watching it unfold with this Yemen resolution in the House, which I uh, was very happy to see pass um, with uh, the votes of even stalwart Trump supporters, uh, 60 plus senators voting uh, to try to cut off U.S. support for the war in Yemen. Is a, it's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, and and but long it, overdue. It, it, and, and long and ab- absolutely long overdue. But the Saudis, I think, when Trump was elected, were so giddy about it; they felt so good about it. This is a guy we can deal with. That they almost couldn't, at senior levels of government, help themselves. Uh, and you know, foreign policy is a human thing. It's practiced by real people. And in the months that followed Trump's election, you had senior Saudi representatives in the United States talking to both Democrats and Republicans and basically unabashedly saying, hey, we're glad to be rid of Obama and we're happy to have Trump. That leaves a mark, a personal mark, I think, on on a lot of people um, who were either part of or supportive of the Obama administration. And we have to be able to think beyond the personal political dimension of this. But that's a factor. Uh, it's not something that can just be wished away. And when you combine that with a structural change on the Hill, and I would say even among the American people, where I think they look at the U.S. Saudi relationship through a much more skeptical lens than maybe decades past, uh, I do think that it would behoove the Saudi government to think much more in a much more complicated way about how they engage the United States as a whole and don't just engage Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. Which is where they've they've taken
0: all their eggs and put them in those two, uh, I would say, rather uncertain baskets. Yeah, no, I think for sure one bit of advice for foreign governments is don't deal with the US on a royal family to royal family basis because it's, (laughs) it's it's bound to come back and haunt you. So, look, we only have a couple of minutes and you've been great with your time and this has been a great conversation. And I would now like to ask you a 30 second question from my, my part that will take you only about, I don't know, the next two years to answer. But, but the, 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 the summation, the wrapping up of a lot of what you've just been talking about is, what is a democratic foreign policy, democratic party foreign policy? How can you communicate in three sentences, because most Americans don't really care to hear the fourth sentence, how a democratic foreign policy is different from the foreign policy that Trump has pursued and will be selling in 2020. How do you you say we are different? And and at the same time, probably say we're not the past. You know, we're not the same old thing you've been hearing out of Washington. We're not the the insider establishment. We're offering something future oriented, and that's something that's not Trumpism. So how how do you summarize that in a few key points?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that I'm going to have to take the next two years to answer that question, and probably the next twenty, actually, because um, you have identified, you've put, you said, "Where is the Holy Grail? Please go find it." Uh, which, you know, it's hard right. to right. find. Look, looking over the last twenty years, someone to be able to do that. But let me let me take a stab. Um, at what I think the kind of core elements are. Uh, number one, we believe that um, there are core American values and a way of life that we need to defend against autocracies. And rather than cozying up to dictators, we're going to push back against them. And to the point that I'll go through sort of the three or four sentences, but and then I'll say a couple things behind them. So that's one. Second thing is There are some big problems out there in the world, the idea of terrorists getting their hands on weapons of mass destruction, climate change, Ebola coming to our shores that require us to work with other countries. And so we are going to have more friends, not fewer, to be able to take on those challenges, unlike Trump. Number three, we're not going to try and solve every problem with the military. We're actually going to invest in our diplomats. And Trump has done exactly the opposite. He's jacked up the military budget while cutting the diplomacy budget dramatically. And the big problems we face in today's world are about diplomatic uh, muscle to pull countries together to solve shared problems. And then the final thing is that one of the great challenges afflicting the American economy and the economy of every advanced country in the world is corruption, uh, the flow of illicit money, uh, the uh, nexus of corporate power and political power. And part of what our foreign policy is going to be about is disrupting those corrupt networks. And that starts with the corruption of this administration, but it means taking on China, Russia, Saudi, other countries who, as a matter of their foreign policy, use corruption as a tool to advance their interests. So that those are kind of big categories where I think you can speak to the American people and say, this is how we are different from the Trump administration. Just on the first one about standing up for democracy, for our way of life, for a certain vision of what it means to be American and to have allies who subscribe to a similar way of life. I would just say one of the great challenges we face today is the rise of a creeping authoritarianism that's trying to eat away around the edges of that. And we need to pull together. Um, you know, Tom Wright describes it as, you know, rallying the free world once again. And in a way that's back to the future, that's, you know, that sounds in kind of Cold War rhetoric, but it needs to be applied in a moment in a much more subtle way today to deal with the challenges that we face. And we need to rally Americans to an idea that we stand for something and believe in something. Uh, and Donald Trump is selling that out to others. And. If he is allowed to get away with that, our society is going to become less free and open as a result, we can't stand for that. So I think that will be, that thematic element is going to be a big part of what a Democrat is going to have to argue going into 2020. Uh, Final word, and I know you said, give a 30 second mm -hmm. answer, but I will say a final word on this. Uh, uh, I I am the co-chair of an outfit called National Security Action, and we did some polling last year on just Americans' attitudes on foreign policy, one of the things we found that was quite interesting is that while Americans don't follow every to and fro of what's happening overseas, they do have a basic radar or barometer for whether the United States is being respected in the world and whether or not our leaders are being looked up to or are being laughed at. And one of the deep concerns about Donald Trump is that he has removed the United States from a position of respect in the world. And leaving aside policy and strategy and everything else, I think a standard bearer for the Democratic Party has to say, we're gonna restore that. We are going to return to uh, the kind of foreign policy and the kind of posture in the world that has the rest of the world looking to us and saying, we respect you, we look up to you, Uh, we aspire to be more like you. Uh, And that's the opposite of that is happening right now. And that matters even to Americans who don't more generally pay attention to foreign policy.
0: Well, I I have to say, um, Jake, I'm in no position to say this for you, but I think you can take the next two years off. Uh, Because, (laughs) uh, you know, not only, I think, have you described it fairly concisely, but uh, for those of you out there in in deep state radio land who are listening to this thing, uh, you may have picked up on the fact that the four or five key points that Jake made which include being respected, working with international institutions, restoring American leadership, fighting corruption, fighting creeping authoritarianism, all actually involve um, implicit critiques of the president and, and and saying, don't be like him. Don't, you know, they're, they're, they're not just about his policies, but about his character. Um, and, uh, uh, and suggest that we really reached a point where uh, the character of the President of the United States is antithetical to both the character of the United States and its needs. Um, and to 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 run against it, you have to demonstrate both of those points, which I think you have done very well. So I, I'm extremely grateful for you joining us. I hope you'll be back again often. I'd love to hear more about your group. and 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 I hope you'll use this channel, where we now have we're approaching a hundred thousand people listening every week uh, to our podcast to 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 reach out to an audience of people who really care about national security uh, and share uh, what you and your group are finding because I, I I think we're we're a good audience for it.
1: Well, you know they they say in radio land, uh, long time listener, first time caller, uh, and that, that's what I am with Deep State Radio. Uh, I've been loving loving the conversations that you guys have. Um, the core group and the the mix of guests you bring in. So I'm honored to have the chance to have this conversation with you. I'd love to come back.
0: Terrific, Jake. Thank you very, very much. Good luck and, uh, you know, see you around campus. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright.